session. Um, but hopefully you find this quite interesting. I don't know what title, I, I've seen two titles in different programmes, so the title I've gone with uh, is International Education, the Transformative Effects of Migration. Um, I've put in brackets non-migration because I think hopefully if I've got time towards the end of the talk, I want to talk about students gaining an international education at home, so transnational education, which is kind of a, a growing trend, particularly amongst UK universities. Um, anyway, so I'm going to start by giving a little bit of background. I've already been asked, you know, what discipline am I in and what, how did I come to this topic? So I'm a geographer, I'm a human geographer. Um, so my job title is University Lecturer in Human Geography. I'm based in continuing education and quarter of my contract is in the School of Geography and Environment. I've published these are a couple, uh, some of the books I've published. Um, the middle one came out of my PhD research where I looked at transnational students moving between Hong Kong, Taiwan and Canada. Um, I've also published a more general book on student migration and edited uh, a collection of essays on changing spaces of education. So my own research really is a combination of interests um, partly in international migration and partly in education and how they come together. Okay, so so I want to begin my talk with a little kind of story anecdote. Um, when I, I was in Hong Kong in 2003, um, and I picked up a copy of Time magazine, it was Time Asia, and it was particularly interesting because this, this was a sort of, um, in a sense, special issue of, of this magazine on education in Asia. And one of the stories is absolutely fascinating. It was about what was being called a package childbirth tour. And it was telling the story of hundreds, if not thousands, of South Korean women, heavily pregnant, boarding planes every year, flying to the US, um, usually to Los Angeles, getting off, giving birth in the States. Often they did this trip alone without their husbands or partners. Um, the, the, the package cost, at the time, 20,000 US dollars. And for that, they got the flights, they got accommodation when they got to Los Angeles, they got um, to give birth in a clinic, a private clinic, catering specifically to South Korean um, women. They got uh, some sightseeing, if they were up to it. But most importantly, they got help with obtaining a passport for their unborn child, because that is, anyone born on US soil is eligible to apply for citizenship. And I just thought this was a really fascinating story, and I was intrigued to find out why these women were doing this, because this is quite extreme, you know, by anyone's standards, this is quite an extreme thing to do when you're heavily pregnant. And the answers they gave, the reasons they gave, were, were completely unexpected and completely unanticipated um, at the time by me. And basically, this quote from Young Jin was quite... Um, representative of most of the women that they interviewed for this article. So she said the reason she was doing it was to save her unborn child from Korea's hellish school system. That's how she described it, this, this extreme understanding of education in, in East Asia, in Southeast Asia. And the author of the article went on to explain Koreans are education zealots, partly because of the Confucian tradition, but also because a degree from a top university is a passport to status and a comfortable life. 
The problem is that getting into good Korean universities has become so competitive that parents are going great distances, literally, to let their kids avoid the whole stressful mess. The favourite ticket is to get them American citizenship, which is guaranteed to anyone born in US soil. So they, these parents, these you know, middle upper middle class South Koreans, quite wealthy, quite well off, were thinking ahead. You know, they were thinking 15, 16, 17, 18 years ahead, and what their children would be experiencing, and what was the, the best thing that could set their kids up for life was a North American, in their view, a North American education. So. A few points to make at this stage in the talk. There is a close and growing relationship between international migration and concerns over education. Okay, and that's not something that we really discuss in the UK very much. But globally, education is increasingly becoming a driver of migration. It's something that people are migrating to get. Educational migration is occurring for higher education, yes. And again, from a UK perspective, that's pretty much all we hear about international students at universities, at epi colleges, but also for secondary and increasingly primary schooling. So South Korea is a very good example of where they really send their kids abroad very young. Your secondary school is too late, you've lost them. You, know, you have to get them when they're really young, when they're going through their formative years, when they're establishing an accent, for example. If you want them to speak English with an American accent or a British accent, you don't wait until they're 12, 13, you send them when they're 6, 7, 8. Okay, so all these things are kind of, they're very geographical. So different parts of the world, they will send their kids at different ages. And talking about geography again, geographical patterns of educational migrations are changing. So 20 years ago, you would see a quite distinct pattern of migration from East to West from non-English speaking countries to English speaking countries. You know, that was kind of a simplistic but general sort of trend. Increasingly now, you've got markets in education opening up in Asia. So for example, Singapore is educating an awful lot of mainland Chinese, for example. Malaysia, um, China itself is plowing lots of money into its higher education systems and trying to attract international students. Hong Kong sees itself as a growing, emergent education hub for the region. So it's not as simple as just thinking, oh well, if all international students come from one part of the world, they go somewhere else. There are these kind of increasing, increasingly interesting regional dynamics around international education. Okay, so that's just a kind of, in a sense, an introduction. Um, a brief overview of the talk. So I'm going to give you some stats. Uh, some background, I guess, on international student migration. And then I want to talk about what I call the human face of educational migration, because my own research that I do is usually, well, generally qualitative in nature, so I really, I'm really interested in talking to people about their experiences. So that's what I really want to bring out in my talk today, actually, is what are the impacts of educational migration for the people actually doing it, undertaking it? So I'm going to talk about transnational families a bit. Um, and then, if I've got time, I'm going to talk about the diversity of international education, which increasingly involves non-migration students, which is something I talked about at the start. Okay, so lots more students nowadays able to obtain international credentials at home. And what does that mean? What does that non-migration mean for them and their credentials? Because 
a lot of the value that we attach to international education is to do with going abroad, it's to do with moving, physically moving. So how valuable is it to get a British education in Hong Kong? And that's what I'm going to talk about, um, hopefully I've got time, later on. And then some conclusions. Okay, so just to give you some sort of background statistics, I've, you can access all of this. I've taken it from um, a publication called Education at a Glance. It's an OECD publication. So if you're interested, just have a look on their website. Since 1975, the number of international students has increased fivefold, from 0.8 million worldwide to 4.1 million in 2010. Since 2000, the number has increased by 99%, with an average annual growth rate of 7.1%. And I just think any stat you look at in relation to international education is staggering. Um, the rate of increase is staggering. Just the general trend in students going abroad for their higher education, and we can even see that in the UK. More and more British students now partly as a result of tuition fee increases, are thinking about going abroad, but they never would have thought about it before. So it is a growing trend, and it is an important trend. Now, interestingly, um, some countries are more affected by this than others. So Australia, Austria, Luxembourg, New Zealand, Switzerland, and the UK have the highest percentage of international students amongst all tuition students. So in those countries, international students, in a sense, have a bigger impact. Okay, they're more visible. However, of course, it doesn't surprise you to learn that the US has by far the highest number, total number of international students. It has 17% of the market share, followed by the UK with 12%. So Britain does attract high numbers, um, but the relative impact is far more great on Britain than it is on the US, because obviously because size of the population, the number of universities, and so on and so on. And I should say that these stats are all to do with tertiary education, so they're missing out this kind of primary, secondary level, which I think personally can be really, really interesting. Um, and again, it might not, probably won't surprise you to learn that 52% of all international students globally come from countries in Asia. So there is a geographical dominance of certain parts of the world still. I just thought just we'd spend a minute really um, comparing the US and the UK, um, the latest figures that I could get on this. So um, the UK has, well, 2011 to 2012, uh, around, this is quite specific actually, 435,230 international students. Um, compared to the US, which has 760 so you can say that a lot more students do actually go to the US, um, but that has a much bigger, the numbers have a bigger impact on our higher education system. Then for both countries, the, yeah? Sorry, do you have a breakdown of undergrad and postgrad and postdoctoral? Not, not at my fingertips, but I can, if you email me, I can get it for you. <laughs> no, not off the top of my head, but it would be interesting, yes. I, I mean, just, yeah. I can talk about Hong Kong, because my research is in Hong Kong, so I can talk about that in a minute. But um, So yeah, China, the People's Republic of China, sends by far the largest number of students um, globally, but also to these two countries, as you can see, followed, you know, 
sort of closely by India. But China is dominant, absolutely dominant in this regard. Um, now, this is very difficult for you to see. The, the, only, the main point I wanted to make about this, actually, was this chart, which shows the percentage of international students at tertiary level in each country. If this, does that work? Oh, yeah. So, um, Luxembourg, you can see, it's something like, four, read that properly, 41.4% um, of their tertiary level students are international, which is astounding. Um, there's Australia, there's the United Kingdom. So we have, I think it's around 15, 16% of our tertiary level student body are international. But then you look where, at where the US is and it's there. So only even though they have such a big population of international students, they have, in terms of percentage, it's only something like 3.5% of their student population are international. So, I mean, it's important to think about the relative impacts. I think that's the part I'm trying to make. You think about, oh, yes, the numbers, but actually the relative impacts are quite important. And um, the government, our government, have, have produced this interesting kind of representation of international education, the latest state of international education in 2013, as they see it. Um, <clears throat> I guess that's quite an important figure in the sense that it's quite a lot of money. So that's what educational exports, exports are worth to the UK economy at the moment. So it sounds like a lot of money to me anyway, 17.5 billion pounds. Um, you can see the biggest share of that is higher education. Um, but there's some other interesting stats around, for example, potential growth areas such as e-learning, which we obviously do a lot of in continuing education. I don't actually do it, but it's, it is absolutely a growth area. Um, and teaching English. The British Council are so active abroad teaching English to students. It's one of our biggest exports. And it says here, at 2011, the UK had the largest share of English language students studying outside their home country with almost 50% students, which is just immense. Um, so, but clearly what this chart shows is, is that the government are taking international education quite seriously because it is, it's quite big business. Okay, I'll just have a little sip of water, <laughs> let you have a breather. Right, so having given you quite a lot of you know, statistical background to this, I want to really turn to focus on what you know described as the human impact. So have a, a look at um, some case studies, really, of transnational educational migration. And I want to begin by talking about what are called Kuroki families. Now these are associated with South Korea, again, and there's a definition here, families are separated between two countries for the purposes of children's education abroad. Now the important thing about this is that the families live apart. So what usually happens in the Kurogi family situation is that the mother will migrate with one or more of the children to the United States for the kids' education and the dad and father will stay behind and work. That's a kind of general picture of how it works. Um, the emergence coincides with early study abroad. So 
Um, I already mentioned earlier that in South Korea there is a perception that you have to move kids to get the benefits of international education, you have to move them young, and primary level is, is really when they want to move them. Um, so that's why it's called early study abroad. And that's really why the mother goes with them, because they are so young. Um, it's not the case of just sending the child abroad, but you, you, they need some sort of parental um, support and guidance. And Kurogi families are really associated with just a few destination countries. We don't tend to see them in the UK. You know, why? I'm not quite sure, could be to do with distance. But um, the US is by far the most popular destination for Kurogi families, followed by Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Singapore. Now, Singapore's really interesting because Singapore's actively trying to recruit these students. Um, Singapore the way South Korean families see Singapore, offers an English language education in what is effectively a Chinese country. Um, it's nearer, it's cheaper than going to the US. Lots of, you know, hugely cheaper than going to the US. So Singapore is seen as an increasingly popular destination, not for the very, very wealthiest in South Korean society, but for the sort of run down, those that are quite well off, but haven't got, you know, millions to throw out their kids' education. And then there's so-called astronaut families, and this is something I've done, my, this is what my research has been on in the past. Um, in this case, children tend to be older, so you're looking at children who are about 13, 14, 15. And the research I did, the, the families moved the kids before they were to sit their equivalent of GCSEs, basically, in Hong Kong or Taiwan. That's where I looked at. Um, they were worried the kids were going to fail at those exams, so they moved them into, um, I looked at Canada, into Canadian high schools when they were about 13, 14, 15. What's interesting about this is the whole family will migrate, buy a house, uh, sort of settle in, and then nearly always, and it wasn't 100% of the cases I looked at, but nearly always the dad then went back to Asia to work leaving um, the mum with the kids again, a bit similar to the Kurogi families. In this case, Canada was a very, very popular destination for this. I can't got time to go into why, but it's a lot to do with Canadian immigration policy and the way the government was actively trying to recruit people from Hong Kong um, just before 1997. So there's kind of complex geopolitical reasons why, but um, Canada, very popular destination, New Zealand, Australia, and the US, not so much, actually, for these older children. Um, and again, I, can't, I haven't got time to go into the reasons why, but it's quite interesting. Um, I've said here, uh, family separation, yeah, that's why it's quite interesting, really, because these families will live for several years apart, and the dad might only fly back twice, three times a year to see his kids and his wife. Um, I've put changes to the gender dynamics, so, when you've got a household relocating from, say, Hong Kong to Canada, um, very often the mother, the, the wife, won't speak English, will speak English very badly, and she finds herself living in the new country, looking after kids, um, the kids have to go to school in a completely alien system, often she wasn't able to drive initially, um, and over time she became much more independent. I mean, she, she, her English becomes better. Um, she just takes hold of all decisions around the household, you know, kind of 
um, the husband sends money over, but she makes all the decisions about how it's spent and so on and so on. And what happens then is when the dad visits, there's an awful lot of friction and tension because his English is usually pretty rubbish. Um, he visits in an environment, he just he feels like an alien in this environment. And he sees, he sees his wife has changed, and all sorts of interesting things happen around kind of friction between um, parents and kids and husband and wife. And of course the kids again feel their dads have left them and so on and so on. So kind of complicated book. Um, I've also done research, and this is the kind of most extreme example, on so-called satellite kids and parachute kids. Again, um, this photo was taken of this house is taken in Vancouver, where I did some research. Um, it's hard to tell, but it's massive. <laughs> um, this house was built by a Hong Kong family. They had quite a lot of money. They immigrated. They, they built the house from, from, from the ground, as it were. Um, and then both parents went back and left brother and sister living in the house. Um, I interviewed a lot of children. Well, I think at the time I, I interviewed 16 children in this situation where their parents had left them. Um, and it was just it was just too much to talk. I, I can't go into it all. But um, I think perhaps the thing to highlight here are the social problems resulting from this. So when you said, well, why are you here? Well, my, kid, my parents want me to go to school here, but they've left. Um, you speak to the mums, they say, well, we, I don't want dad to have an affair back in Asia, so that's why I've gone back. But the, the kids, <laughs> in terms of what happens to the kids being left alone, they just don't go to school, which is just so ironic. <laughs> like, the irony of the whole thing. Um, they don't do their homework. Why would you do your homework if your parents aren't there saying, do your homework? There's no adult at home telling them to do their homework. Their houses are trashed, absolutely trashed. Um, materially, they're well off. The parents send them lots of money. The parents often arrange for a cleaner to come around once a week, for a gardener to come around once a week. Um, but that's not really parental kind of support. Um, I spoke to quite a few teachers, head teachers in Vancouver, who said that when they had parents' evenings or when they had a problem with the child, they'd phone home and say, I want the mum to come in. And a cleaner would come in, posing as a mum, who'd done the rounds. So she'd been on all these, you know, this situation. They were like, you're not all these kids' mum. So they had, but, but more seriously, I also interviewed a brother and sister who, again, lived, not this house, but lived in a very similar house. They'd had two break-ins, because um, burglars were targeting houses they knew that there were no parents at home. And when they'd had the first breaking, the li um, say little boy, he was 15, but he was young, uh, he phoned his mum back in Hong Kong and said, what do I do? And she said, you do not call the police. You do not call the police because if, you know, Canadian authorities find out that we're left you alone, we lose our immigration status. And, um, it, you know, it's quite serious. These kids are scared. I mean, um, you know, I did interview them in their house, and it was huge. And I, I would have been scared in that situation. And also, I didn't come across this, but there were media reports at the time of kids being enlisted into gangs, you know, being targeted for money because you know there were no adults around, and so on and so on. So, um, but but getting back to it, these are kind of the sort of nitty gritty things that arise as a result of educational migration because you know, I did speak to you know, one or two parents and they were absolutely adamant they were doing the right thing for their kids because their kids were getting an English language education you know, in an English language society. They're going to go back to Hong Kong, Taiwan at the end of the day and they're going to get brilliant jobs. Okay, so 
questions that arose to me out of this were, do the benefits of educational migrations outweigh the costs? Is there a growing disillusionment with international education? In South Korea, absolutely there is. So a lot of mothers have actually, from these Kurobi families, have written memoirs. There's been probably five or six that have come out recently, um, saying how it was a failed strategy. You know, their kids, yeah, the kids can speak English really well. You know, the kids have got a great American accent. But it hasn't benefited, though. It, it's destroyed the family. It's destroyed family relations. Um, so there are these interesting accounts coming out now suggesting, ah, uh, maybe it's not all it's cracked to be. Um, other literature around this, academic literature, has talked about the maternal sacrifice. You know, in nearly all cases, it's the woman that gives up her job. She gives up her lifestyle. Um, the women that I interviewed who were in the astronaut families, I think all but one were professional women back in Hong Kong or Taiwan. They were accountants, they were lawyers, they were teachers. They gave that up for their, as they saw it, for their kids' education. I should, wow, they did actually interview four dads who gave up their jobs and the, the, the wives were working back. These were all Taiwanese. And that was absolutely fascinating because they had such a, a shock having to look after the kids. But <laughs> I have got time to go into that. But um, if you want, I can send you some literature on that because I've published on that and it's just really interesting. Um, you know, the kids, in some cases, you know, kids said, oh, yeah, it's brilliant. My parents aren't here. I can do whatever I want. Right? They had parties and so on and so on. But, you know, when you scratch the surface, they were lonely. They weren't getting the kind of support that they needed to get. Um, so the children very much disempowered. I think a lot of the media around these kind of families at the time see these families as wealthy and powerful because they had quite a lot of money. But that kind of doesn't you know, really address the situation of the kids who have no, you know, little no say in the fact they've been moved to a different country. Um, and often without either both parents or without one, any parents. Um, it's, you know, not an exagger exaggeration to say that, you know, fam family relations do break down in situations of a lot of strain on relationships. And as I mentioned, Especially in the case where you know there's no parents, the kids I've got no motivation to go to school. Um, speaking on the phone from Hong Kong to your son and saying, "Have you done your homework?" It doesn't work. I mean, it might be different now with social media and Skype and stuff. When I did this research, you know, people didn't use Skype in the same way. So maybe things have changed. Maybe it's possible for parents to survey their kids a bit more. But at the time, um, you know, anyway. Okay, so, sorry. So, but, but, just to have put a massive but here, um, is it worth it? Yes, for some people, it is. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you a really big quote up from one of, one of the students I interviewed. Well, she was a graduate. So basically, she was, she's from Hong Kong. She was educated in Canada, and then she went back to Hong Kong, and I interviewed her. In Hong Kong, um, she worked for a multinational corporation. She was head of PR no, HR, sorry. Um, she recruited people, basically, for, for the firm. And she, so she had this insight into what having this international education actually means for these people. So I'm just going to read the quote because it's kind of interesting. So she said, I guess some of the managers or um, HR, they found that people that come back to Hong Kong from the outside countries are more outgoing and they have better communication skills. 
They are not afraid of expressing themselves. These are the good qualities that they are looking for. They don't want to hire a fresh graduate where they cannot speak English in front of the clients, even to get some information. Sometimes they, local graduates from Hong Kong uh, universities in Hong Kong, are a bit introver <coughs> introverted. They think of a lot of things, but they won't tell you. In a Western style, it's sort of like you have to stand up for yourself and express yourself and things like that. And also, when they conduct the job interview, they will test your English level. So some of the Hong Kong graduates were stuck. It's not that they don't know how to answer, it's that they don't know how to express themselves because they don't have the practicing experience. Of course, some of the local graduates are very bright and they will get a job, but they may feel that the perception of them is unfair. So, um, counting the bathrooms, I said about it, um, when you actually talk to graduates living and working in places like Hong Kong, but I imagine this picture is replicated in other countries, um, where there are so-called Western multinational corporations operating, having this Western degree, Western experience actually comes from an awful lot. And it means they do get good jobs, and it means that they are well paid. You know, it, 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 in a sense, it pays off. If you ask them about their relationship with their parents, you know, that's a completely different issue. But anyway. Can I just put in as a question? Um, what about boarding schools? Because that seems to me the whole answer to fly the kid out it and let it fly back during holiday. And so it's totally yeah. controlled within the educational system during term time. Absolutely. I went to a boarding school mm. and had the same experience. It solved my problem. It absolutely would. Well, there's, there's a couple of answers to that then. Um, in Canada, where I do the there isn't the same system of boarding schools as there is here. But it was actually, a lot of it was to do with money, believe it or not, and it was actually cheaper for them to do it this way. Um, and you think that's ridiculous? Of course, you know um, it, it would be practical to put to put them in residential schools. Um, but this was just the kind of um, migrant that I was talking to. The kind of family they were they were wealthy, but they weren't super super wealthy. So they were still thinking about how to save money, if that makes sense. And this to them was just it was just practical, and, and it I think that. You know, I'm, I'm not going to culturally stereotype, but, but they were coming at they had their, their attitudes to move maybe towards kind of family life and, and kind of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable were kind of different. Um, but you know, I do know a bit about UK boarding schools, and I do know that they have a lot of international students doing exactly what you're exactly. saying. You know, some boarding schools in the UK have 17 to 20 percent international students. So maybe 80 percent. But probably. Those international students are from families that are the wealthy, wealthy, wealthiest of society. So these are kind of the next sort of, in a sense, level down. Um, but you're right, and I think if Canada, if Canada had more boarding schools, that might have been an option for some of them. But it wasn't an option for all of them because, I mean, some of these families as well had the idea that they would just give up work while their kids were in education. But that they couldn't do that. They had to go. You know, some of them were just like, well, you know, we'll, we'll resume our business in Hong Kong in you know, eight years' time. So can one add to that, that mm -hmm. there should be a change in the way they pay for it, rather like a mortgage, you have mm -hmm. an 80-year-old, 50-year-old, 20-year-old period to repay the debt, yeah. and you send your kid to a boarding school, and for the next 30 years you pay it off. 
Yeah, I mean, that, exactly. But I think um, the other, th uh, it's, it's quite complicated, but the other thing about these particular students is they weren't on international student visas. The reason they were worried about the, the authorities partly finding out about, um, is because they were, they were business immigrants to Canada. So as far as the Canadian government was concerned, they were in Canada running a business, but actually they weren't. <laughs> Um, so they weren't paying international <coughs> student fees, they were paying local fees, you see, so it was cheap, it was very cheap. Um, so I hope that answers your question, but you're absolutely right, and, but a lot, you know, a lot of boarding schools are say in, in, in England, they have high numbers of international students doing just this. Um, it's the future, I think. It's yes. the future to overcome the present. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. it's a trend, absolutely. Okay, how long have I got? <laughs> Okay, so just I've got 10 minutes, so I'm not going to spend very long on this at all, really. But I just wanted to, to raise, I've talked a lot about student mobility and, and family mobility around education. But this idea of transnational education is fascinating because it involves effectively no mobility on the part of the student at all. Mobility is, is, is the degree provider, the university and, and the staff and the materials and the books. All these things are mobile, but the actual students are usually at home, not always, but usually. Um, it's very, this is a very significant thing for UK universities. The, the, the share that we have in um, the Asian market is huge. Um, and British universities are very active in providing degrees abroad. Just to give you a definition of transnational education, learners are located in a country other than the one in which the awarding institution is based, okay? So what I'm going to talk about, because this is what I've done research on, and I know something about this, is British, British universities operating in Hong Kong right now, offering degrees in Hong Kong. Um, and here's just a couple of posters that we took photos of when we were in Hong Kong. Um, so you've got the University of London has always been very active abroad, providing degrees. And you see, this is my London in Hong Kong. I don't need to go anywhere. I can get a British education in Hong Kong. I similarly got her at what university attain a quality UK degree in Hong Kong. Um, and this is just a list from the British Council of all the universities in the UK that are currently offering degrees of one sort or another in Hong Kong. So you can see there's a whole range of universities, but not just the new universities or the old universities. Um, there's all sorts in there. There's no Oxford then? No, Oxford and Cambridge actually. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, you're not there. Oxford does its own things abroad, which I can't go into right now. Um, but not the, spe the specific degree, transnational education program, no, they're not. Which is interesting. Maybe it tells you something about the motivation of universities. Okay, I won't bore you with this. <laughs> about the project, um, just to say really that it was a, a qualitative project funded by the ESRC and the Research Grants Council in Hong Kong. Um, we did 70 interviews with students and recent graduates, 18 interviews with UK providers and British universities providing degrees in Hong Kong, and nine interviews with recruiters in Hong Kong to get a sense of what employers actually thought of these degrees in Hong Kong on the ground. Um, and most of the interviews were conducted in Cantonese and translated into English. Okay, um, 2013 there were, or there are 532 degree courses run by 36 different UK higher education institutions 
in Hong Kong. So quite a lot of degree programs. Um, I haven't said it here, but the majority of them are undergraduate, actually, which is quite surprising in response to the question about the sort of split. Um, the majority of these programs are undergraduate, but there's a lot at master's level, and there's only a handful at PhD level. So um, master's level is growing, um, but most of the students that take these degrees, for reasons that I can explain, want an undergraduate qualification. What's amazing about this is that 78% of transnational education comes from British universities. So in Hong Kong, obviously there's a colonial you know, reason why, why this is the case, but um, British universities provide the vast majority of all non-local education in Hong Kong. And Australia, which you think of Australia as being this really active player in international education, which it is, but in Hong Kong, you know, it's not anywhere near as significant as, as the UK. Okay, some very briefly, some findings of the project, which kind of surprised us in a way. Rather than being something that these students on these programs, undergraduate programs in particular, um, aspire to, you think that maybe they'd want a British degree because of all the things a British degree stands for. Um, a UK education offers the only way of obtaining a degree. So for nearly all of the students that we interviewed and the graduates, they their preference would have been into, would have been to get into a local university, so University of Hong Kong, City University, and so on. But they couldn't because their A level equivalent grades weren't good enough, or their GCSEs weren't good enough. So. Um, a UK education provided them, in a sense, a second chance at getting a degree, any degree. Um, however, these no, non-local degrees, as they're called in Hong Kong, the students often suffer from a lack of recognition, again, in all sorts of ways that I could go into if I had time. Um, but they lack, a lot of the degrees are delivered through local universities, but they're British degrees. So the students are not seen as a University of Hong Kong students, for example, even though they're based on the campus and this and the other. Um, they can't take up the same number of books, they can't be members of the student union there, they can't live in halls, um, they have very little kind of by way of social activities provided for them. Some of the teaching on these programmes, even though it's, it's based in the University of Hong Kong or City University, actually happens in the town centre, um, doesn't happen on campus. So students feel a bit marginalised by um, these programmes. And, oh, and then the other thing I should say is that the government, as it stands at the moment, of Hong Kong doesn't recognise these qualifications as degrees. Okay? They only recognise their own higher education awarding institutions as providing degrees. So, um, if these students want to go into the civil service, which is a degree is a necessity, they can't. Um, they have to get a degree from a local university. Um, and then this issue of, of travel or lack of travel, which I, I just find fascinating. Was it an issue for the students once they graduated? Yes, basically. They had a degree certificate, a completely legitimate degree certificate from a British university, and most of them had never stepped foot in Britain, ever. Um, which is not their problem, it's not their fault at all, because that's how the degrees are set up. They're taught entirely in Hong Kong. 
But when it came to their job interview, they got the CV, they've got their University of X in Britain degree, and they walk in, and the people interviewing them think they're going to have brilliant English. They think they're going to be fluent. They think they're going to speak English with a you know, British accent, you know. Um, that's where they fall down. They often never even left Hong Kong, never mind actually um, come to Britain. So it does. It is a problem for these students. This transnational education is fantastic in many ways because it provides students an opportunity to get a degree who otherwise would not have had that opportunity. It's fantastic, and it also, you know, some of the teaching on these programs is brilliant. Okay, some of the staff that go out from British universities out to Hong Kong and other countries, you know, Malaysia, um, Singapore, and so on, they teach to a very high standard. However, that doesn't get over the fact that these students haven't got that British experience. You know, they've not lived in Britain for two years. Experience. They don't have that um, inculcation in a British sort of life, in a way. You know, they don't have all that cultural capital that goes along with being an international student. So these are the invisible international students. You know, we have in the UK, you know, hundreds of, hundreds of thousands of them graduating with British degrees abroad, but they're not you know, they are, they, they, they fly under the radar, basically. Okay, so just to thank you for your attention, uh, for all this time. Just to conclude then, I would say that international education is important. Um, hopefully you'd agree with me, but um, student mobility remains the most significant aspect of this, absolutely. And the Im I haven't gone into any of this, but the impacts of on schools and universities, towns, cities and regions. In the UK, you know, you look at how international students are transforming British university campuses in all different ways, okay? So um, that's just the UK. You know, Australian universities absolutely rely on international students for their universities to survive. You know, there are programs that would not run, could not run without international student fees, for example. So, um, it is very, very important, and it's very important to our higher education system here. However, as I've mentioned, there are other aspects of internationalisation that are increasingly important. Um, and one of them, which is, you know, is just there, is transnational education. So it is delivering degrees to students at home, so they don't actually need to leave their home country. Um, but I think as this chart demonstrates, you know, there, are all, there are various aspects that we're thinking about acknowledging. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Thank you. <laughs> <coughs> Did you questions? Yeah, I have a few questions. Are you aware that Kerogi families are about two miles away from here? No. <laughs> Oxford is having, because of the education at the primary level, secondary level in Oxford, quite a lot of families are doing what you said, and they're having a significant effect on the local market, including house, house prices. Really? Right. And, um, That's they're doing exactly what you said. By moving here, yeah. and the kids go to school here, and they're living here, or the, the mother is living here. Yeah. I will have to ask my next research. So I thought project. you could give me some local research. Yeah, I need some local research. I'm actually trying to Vancouver all the time. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's yeah, significant. I'll have a look into that. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I give accommodation to a lot of international students coming over, normally for postgraduate courses. 
what I see again and again is that they don't plan to take their skill tax their own country. Although in the short term they may do so, their ultimate goal is because they love Britain so much oh, to yeah. stay here. And I wondered what sort of proportion of students who do um, graduate or postgraduate degrees abroad actually don't take their skills back to their own countries. Because, I mean, is this an ever perpetuating Thing. You question. talked about the rise since the 2000, so many percent in you know, international students and so on, students going abroad from Asia. But what will be the future trend? Because surely these people are getting Western skills, and then what happens? Are they going back so that things then change? So ultimately, this ought to be unnecessary. It ought to be unnecessary for them leave their own countries, shouldn't they? That's all, though you make several interesting, interesting points there. I think, um, anecdotally, I think it depends what country the student comes from, exactly. actually, whether they intend to go back or not, and what the job prospects are. So when I interviewed the Hong Kong students in Canada at the time, they were, their job prospects were much better in Hong Kong than they were in Vancouver at the time. Um, I think if, if the students you're talking about have, are successfully getting working in the UK, um, that's great, but a lot was, I mean, our, you know, our sort of local students are, are, are struggling to get jobs, as you know. Um, so then for them, an option is just to go back and take the skills back. They have, in a sense, they have two options, you know. Um, I don't have any statistics on the percentage of skills. I think, I think the government, if you ask them, they would say that most students go back. But of course, it's convenient, they, you know, they, they need to be able to say that, um, because otherwise they'll be uproar if, if, if people thought people weren't going back. Um, so it's really hard to kind of get the proper picture. You know, if you look at official statistics, they, you know, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> it was interesting at an earlier lecture though that um, by Martin Roos, yes. the migration observer trend, he said the biggest group of um, immigrants to the country are students. Uh, at the same time, public opinion is not against students. No. Yeah. Um, but it's a good point. If those students then remain in the country, I mean, I'm not putting a, a value on it one way or the other, no. but you could imagine that uh, people would not be so happy about that. I mean, no, because, I mean, especially the reasons they'd be saying is to find work. And the whole discourse in the UK about immigration is they're taking our jobs. You know, that's just kind of. <coughs> I, I won't express my opinion, but yeah, absolutely. I, I think. I think Martin's completely right. The, the, the general perception of students are great, but as long as they go back. That, well, you've got to be very careful, though, because I think it's the politicians that are the leading edge on that, and their line is to play the race card if it's going to benefit oh, of the of amount of votes they're going to get. Yeah. And it's a pretty lousy reason. It's, it's always strategic. Isn't it's, it? it's the race card that you've got to watch out for and tell them that. It's purely the race card you want to play, just to get a few votes from the wrong side of the fence. We'll be interested in the, the Oxford City primary schools yeah. are well oversubscribed now. You can't, you can't get into any of them without a, a big effort. And that would be interesting to see if, if that is having an effect in terms of the, um, the primary children coming in. I will. I'm so intrigued now. I've got some stats for you, actually. My partner's um, secretary of Newmaster First School. We were looking at these numbers the other day because it's quite interesting because you get a big Philippine population at the JR. 
So the nurses come over, don't they? Work at the JR, and then their children get educated at the local schools. So yeah, so there is some research there. And it'd be interesting to talk to those nurses in a way to yeah. find out is their primary motivation working there so their kids can go to school yeah, here, or really. is it is the job the main kind of focus? Thank you. Got to stop. Oh, sorry, but stop. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Thank you.